Did you know that growing is not the same as scaling? I don't have much background in scaling strategies. However, innovation coaches have told me that relatively few innovations that social impact organizations come up with actually lead to implementation on a large scale. That's pretty damning, especially since some of us like to make claims that we bring about structural societal transformation. I therefore was keen to interview Amy Ragsdale, director of the consulting and training agency Spring Impact. They support nonprofits, NGOs, and philanthropic organizations with their scaling aspirations. How can our sector's organizations take on scaling in a more effective way? What kinds of scaling approaches can we distinguish? And here I've got a surprise for you in store. And what kinds of leadership mindsets, organizational attributes, habits and practices either enable or disable scaling? This is a pretty important conversation we need to have. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. Listen, I know very little about scaling. However, I have learned from innovation coaches that relatively few innovations that social impact organizations come up with actually lead to implementation on a large scale. I've also been somewhat exposed to the lean impact uh, approach that was spearheaded by Enmai Chang here in the US. And then recently, as part of a board role that I play, I was exposed to um, the work of consultants who um, teach, if you want to say it like that way, nonprofits and NGOs, how to go about scaling and how to think about it. And that consulting agency is called Spring Impact. It's been fascinating for me to learn more about scaling approaches. It's a pretty complex uh, area. So it is now as good a time as any time to ask Amy Ragsdale, the director at the consulting agency Spring Impact, about what are the scaling approaches we can distinguish, what kinds of leadership mindsets and culture, organizational attributes, what habits and practices and mindsets are either enablers or disablers uh, to scaling. So that's what I'm going to ask Amy now. So Amy, welcome to our show. Glad to be here, Tosca. It's going to be really interesting. So 
Amy, for all of you out there, listeners, is the director um, at Spring Impact. She was also before this a senior consultant and managing consultant as well. In fact, she's been with Spring Impact since 2019. She was before that a senior consultant, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, at Capgemini Consulting. Is that how you pronounce it? Capgemini. Mm-hmm. Capgemini. Thank you for correcting me. And she was also a research fellow before that at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences, where she did neuroscience research at the intersection of mindfulness, empathy, and stress. And of course, now I would like to ask you, but I'm not going to do that. How did you journey from neuroscience to consulting? But that's for another day. <laughs> but fascinating topic. So, Amy, let's get into this, just so that we all get on the same page. What does Spring Impact do for its clients? Who are your ideal clients and what do you offer to them? Thank you. So at Spring Impact, we partner with different types of mission-driven organizations and funders to specifically focus on how they can scale their impact sustainably. We do that through consulting, like you mentioned, uh, for the the organization that you're on the board of. We have training offerings and then also programs. And our key focus as a nonprofit ourselves is how we can help other mission-driven organizations optimize their operations, build their team's scale mindsets and capabilities. And so our ideal partner is any organization or funder that is thinking through key questions like, What channel or pathway or multiplier is best for me to use to achieve impact at scale? Mm -hmm. How can I build a sustainable funding model? What are the potential payers that or sources of renewable and reliable funding that I can use to recover my costs at scale? How can I sustain quality? These are all the types of really critical questions that we find organizations have to answer as they think about scaling their impact. And Spring Impact's role is honestly to be a coach. Um, We know ourselves as a nonprofit that the reality of working in the NGO space is you're always putting out day-to-day fires and it's very hard to carve out time to step back and think big and long-term about the impact that we seek. Mm -hmm. And so one of the key things that we do for our partners is to just hold that space and support teams to not only develop their hypotheses for how they will reach impact at scale, but then test all of the key assumptions and risks that underlie that hypothesis. Interesting. You you used a number of terms that I think we'll come back to, such as what you just said, test hypothesis, key assumptions, risks, Mm -hmm. sustainable funding models, underpinning a scaling approach, and so on. Just one question for clarification. You said right in the beginning, you offer training, consulting, and programs. What do you mean by programs? It's a great question. So sometimes we'll partner at actually the geographic and societal problem level. So we might partner with a funder who is really interested in improving early childhood development outcomes in South Africa and design a program to say, this takes an ecosystem approach. We can work with one organization, but that pretends like we're in a vacuum. And in reality, it makes sense to think about the players in the ecosystem more broadly and partner with several of them. So each can you utilize their unique strength and focus on scaling that aspect of their contribution. Okay. So in that particular example, that could be a more, what I think some people call a strategic philanthropy approach 
or a field building approach? Absolutely. That's what you are referring. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. So importantly, let's start to unpack for our audience scaling. What is it and how is it different, as I learned recently from your colleagues, from growing? That seems to be a source of confusion in the mission-oriented sector. It often is a source of confusion. At Spring Impact, we define scale as impact relative to the size of a societal problem. So how are we truly making a dent or moving the needle for the problem that we aim to tackle? And just as you point out, the first thing people often confuse is that they think about growing organizations, Mm. scaling impact. And often scaling impact might not even mean growing the organization at all. Because we can scale impact through a whole variety of means, including, you know, others taking on our intervention or our solution at scale. And so ultimately, when we talk about scale, we want to focus on scaling the change or the impact that you create in people's lives, making the problem smaller. It's all about impact relative to the size of the problem rather than the size of our organization. Mm, Yeah. And of course, we won't go into that now, but the Hmm. inherent impetus within organizations to want to grow, uh, assuming that growth will also mean more impact. Actually, what what I understood from the Spring Impact colleagues is that if you grow, but the, uh, the proportion of resources that keeps going into funding the solution grows in equivalent ways, that's not really necessarily scaling. That's just growing. Am I saying this right or not? You are. Yes. We often talk about incremental growth versus scale. And so with scale um, strategies, we often try and say, what are the levers we can pull where it doesn't require us to directly deliver our intervention for every single community member or every single uh, region that could benefit? And instead, create that um, step-up change through a variety of mechanisms such that it doesn't take the same amount of resources to create that equitable, deep, lasting impact. Mm, It does not take the same amount of resources. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So um, I understand in the field of scale, we also talk about economies of scale and scope. What does that mean? So at Spring Impact, what I would say is we often talk about different mechanisms to reach economies of scale. And one of the biggest challenges that we see our partners face is related to cost, of course. We often talk about, you know, cost per successful outcome. How much will it take to help someone receive mental health treatment or someone, um, you know, get the health care that they're after? That type of economy of scale, it's really difficult to make a dent in a societal problem when we're working on an individual person-by-person basis. And so we like to help our partners think through different models that they can use to reach economies of scale. And that can include everything from doing a you know direct-to-consumer or customer or constituent or client, whatever language we're using, um, mm-hmm. solution or intervention. It can also include pathways where we're working strategically with others. There's a whole range of pathways to do that. And it can include indirect pathways. So economies of scale are often unlocked when we pair direct delivery of interventions or programs with systems change, whether it's movement building, creating or changing markets, changing regulation, influencing public policy. 
Ah, so that last uh, dimension is also part of of uh, of uh, scaling. Can be part of a scaling approach. That's okay. interesting as well. Just a quick side uh, bar note that it is my sense that many nonprofits actually don't really know what the cost per per successful outcome is. That they have not necessarily gone yet gone about calculating that in a, in a semi rigorous way. Is that fair or not? I think it is fair, and I would perhaps place the onus on the funders, not the non you know the nonprofits or the NGO organizations. I think often um, we're asked to write grants in a very specific way that doesn't actually encourage us to distill down what is our cost per successful outcome. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is when we work with our partners to distill that rough cost, ballpark cost. Mm-hmm. And then we use that to look at their goal, their vision for how many people they hope to impact. There's a light bulb moment where organizations realize I can't do this through philanthropy alone. I'm going to need some sort of way to recover costs, or I'm just going to be on the hamster wheel of grand funding. Right. So that's a very important part of organizations' journey to scale is uncovering what can that earned income or renewable type of, of funding be. Yes, yes, earned income is one thing that I also like to think about sometimes. And so what I what I um gather is that the questions of what are we scaling, what approach, what intervention, what solution, where are we scaling, and who will do the scaling. And that last thing is really quite critical. It doesn't necessarily have to be the organization itself, right? As you already said. And then you distinguish between doers and payers. Can you tell Talk more about these these central questions of what, where, who. Absolutely. So a lot of times the what is really interesting because a lot of the organizations that we work with provide pretty holistic services. And the first question to answer is, are we hoping to scale that whole thing? Mm -hmm. Are we hoping to scale a set of values? And maybe actually we're just trying to embed those values into a market or into a government or into another system. Um, So first, we try and distill what is the core that we're trying to scale. Your point about about geographic scope is also very important. And then doers and payers, I think, is one um, where often organizations are kind of forced to be opportunistic and don't make a strategic choice about this. So what I mean by doer and payer is doer is who are the other organizations, the other entities, even individuals that are going to be involved in, in implementing or in delivering the what it is that you're trying to scale. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways to involve partners. You can open source a curriculum. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous is actually an interesting example of impact at scale, right? Open source curriculum. Anyone can start a group. There's a very clear set of principles, very mm-hmm. clear set of curriculum, but it's become, it's taken on a huge scale because it doesn't require just one organization to implement. Um, other models include being a trainer, being a consultancy actually is Spring Impact's model for scale. And we also have our own open source tools. A lot of other organizations will create associations. There's networks. You can do partnerships, even social franchises, which tend to lend themselves well when you want to have more control and more of an ongoing relationship with the other organizations that you're working with to deliver an intervention or a program. Um, and then, of course, there's payers. And what I like to say um, at Spring Impact, and this has actually been very influenced by Malago Foundation's thinking, is that there are 
certain few buckets of of payers at scale. Sounds like you're familiar with that too. Well, um, I've I've read one of of their uh, readings in the in in the Stanford Social uh, Review. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of truth that when working with 300 organizations at this point that are all trying to scale, ultimately the payers do distill down to. Is this going to be something that government can pay for? And part of our approach has to be advocating for that budget and aligning our interventions with national or federal, or excuse me, or state or local policy agendas. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be our constituents and community members themselves, which can be appropriate, but obviously isn't always? Is it going to be that we have some sort of third party like an insurance provider or an employer? Sometimes there are models where there are other people willing to pay for an intervention. Like you can imagine if you're helping folks um, get trained into a type of of job, there might be a market from employers for well-qualified candidates who are willing Mm -hmm. to pay a fee to an organization that's providing that training. Um, And then, of course, there's big aid and there's philanthropy. And often organizations have to blend both philanthropy, even if it's coming from big aid or local foundations with some of those other earned income models. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I want to follow up on a couple of things quickly. So when you said one thing that the what are we scaling, one thing that can is, we said, embedding values in other bigger actors, right? Like, for instance, government. So on that, would it be fair to say that a rights-based approach to development, which, as you know, came up, 10, 15 years ago amongst some um, INGOs and UN agencies and bilateral agencies, for instance, where the attempt is to embed human rights values around, uh, you know, the right to receive certain services from government, for instance, to embed that in government policy and regulations and programming so that would be one approach for scaling i'm i'm i just made the connection am i thinking right absolutely okay yes and i think it relates to um ideas about decolonizing aid and localizing development as well so oftentimes the holy grail for organizations is to scale through government and to mm-hmm. have, and that makes sense because government is such a critical player in ensuring that you can equitably reach community members at scale in a way that you know capital markets will never. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there's that ambition, there are very, very few examples of organizations that have successfully navigated that journey to government-owned, whether it's solutions or programs or um, interventions. And what we've seen in our work, and we actually partnered very closely with Village Reach, which is an amazing healthcare organization based in sub-Saharan Africa, and they partner very closely with um, the Malawi Ministry of Health and the Mozambique Ministry of Health, But what we saw in our joint partnership is that government priorities are very rarely front and center, and there's very little attention given to existing government systems and capabilities. And so what we need to do instead is paint a picture of success that looks like government making decisions using evidence, government balancing fidelity and adaptation, supporting the environment where all stakeholders can work together, supporting policies and government systems that enable integration um, and then the the role of of the organization of the NGO is secondary and is to support government and to build that capacity. And then the role of the community is to stay invested in the problem being solved and where possible to support accountability for quality implementation and, and ultimate impact. 
Mm, interesting. And 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 I also, as a uh, follow-up, I just want you to please uh, social franchises. What 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 is that? It's a great question. So a social franchise is not that different from the idea of McDonald's as a franchise. It's the idea of packaging up all of the operations, the core services intervention that's being delivered in one region, and then creating an opportunity for a franchisee to come in and actually replicate that in a new geographic region. Mm. And we've seen, um, and then often there's an ongoing relationship, right? So there might be some initial screening that a franchisee would have to pass, probably some some upfront training, ongoing training and quality standards that that, um, we call it the the implementer, the franchisee is is then delivering, um, and data sharing agreements between the two organizations. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. I think we'll we'll come back to that in a moment. Um yeah, in fact uh, <laughs> um some of the models that I've now learned about is the creation of kind of baby organizations, right? As your colleague Richard uh, called it, replicas uh or spin-offs or subsidiaries or partnering with other organizations that can do things that we cannot do at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anything more you want to say about the creation of baby organizations, air quotes, or replicas or spin-offs or subsidiary, subsidiaries? What, what, what should we imagine? Well, I find that the best, I would call them partnerships. So if we're working with in partnership with other organizations that already exist, and they're not just us sort of branching out and creating smaller subsidiaries of our own entity without using, without partnering with the resources and the infrastructure of other organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever we partner with the resources and the infrastructure of another organization, we have to have some reason that that partnership brings value to both organizations. So maybe just to share an example, mm-hmm. one of, of the organizations that I worked with as uh, part of the Spring Impact team years and years ago, it's called Strong Minds. They work in Uganda and Zambia primarily around treating depression, particularly for women, but for all people. Mm-hmm. And they've developed this model that's um, very effective. It, it involves a group therapy. It's called interpersonal group therapy, and it's led by a peer in the community. And what they've seen is that um, they wanted to partner with INGOs like a grassroots soccer or even a BRAC because they found that a lot of women who were experiencing depression have no way to then engage in an intervention about helping them secure livelihoods or helping them with health outcomes. Because if someone's depressed, there's no ability to engage with those other. So there's a real reason that grassroots soccer and others wanted to adopt and take on and embed an intervention that would help their community members and their constituents get treated for depression. Mm. Um, And so that's an example where I think Often we're looking to say, where is there a, where is there a chance to bring together the existing strengths of two organizations mm-hmm. and create a more holistic and supportive experience that is ultimately achieving you know all of our goals for the constituencies or the community members that we're engaging with. So that is a form of a strategic partnership, really. Exactly. Talking yeah. about okay, okay, got it. Um, so you know, you you hear about these uh scaling models uh, you know uh, uh, b2c 
quote, quote, this is from the private sector, business to client, for instance, is our model or B2B, business to business or B2C, B2G, sorry, business to government. What other models are there out there? And and why does the ability to to Mm -hmm. shift between these different models um, matter when it comes to, to scaling? Absolutely. So I see each of those buckets that you just outlined as having multiple models below them, but I think that covers the gamut of the types of um, models that we would would be after. So what I would add is, you know, in that B2C bucket, that's where you often see scale models like, great, we have this awesome curriculum, we have this online training, we can deliver something at great scale because often that does require introducing some sort of digital component if you're going to try and go B2C in that way. Yeah. The business to business bucket, that's where we would put those partnerships, even joint ventures, networks, any opportunity to bring together the strengths of multiple organizations. And then business to government is, again, that holy grail where I gave the example with Village Reach, right, where we're embedding an intervention or program into the existing um, government entity skill set capacity and making sure that we're strengthening those existing systems rather than creating siloed alternatives. Mm. Um, and then what I what I think is interesting to layer on to the B2B, B2C, and, and B2G is where indirect pathways come in. So that's where we see the place for movement building, for changing or creating a market, for influencing public policy. And most organizations will use a few of those at the same time. So actually, that same Strong Minds example, they do direct delivery themselves. That's how they keep their intervention really um, continuously improving they then created partnerships with INGOs, and then they used that evidence base from both their direct delivery and their partnerships with INGOs to develop partnerships with governments and actually, in the last few years, have um, partnered so deeply with the Ugandan Ministry of Education and Sports that now uh, mental health for learners is being prioritized at a national level and 1% of institutional funds are being dedicated for specialized mental health services. So that's an example where you have to be really strategic about how you're going to use multiple pathways and often um, in concert need to engage a few different ways to actually make a dent in the size of a societal problem at scale. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't know why, but until now, I, you know, I never really had realized that those uh, NGOs and, and foundations that add advocacy, for instance, to their uh, mix of programs that that is also a scaling approach, or at least it can be. Right? It's 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 a simple part, and yet I never 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 came to my mind. So absolutely. Well, and just to dig into that for a moment, the social sector is not set up for that, right? So in the U, it's different in every in every country, but often when we're working with partners in the U.S. context, they have to set up a separate legal entity in order to do advocacy and lobbying because you can't use philanthropic dollars. And so there's the C3 and C4 structures and it's yeah. not easy to do advocacy or lobbying as a, as a social impact driven organization. Yeah. The inherent limits are are strong. Yeah. Right. Now, as you scale, how can you maintain enough, um, your colleague called that fidelity in terms of the quality of the service or the product, the solution that's being scaled, while at the same time accepting, I guess, that you need a more hands-off approach towards 
uh, or more indirect forms of quality control. So how do you uh, see nonprofits uh, navigate that? It's a really hard challenge. And that's one of the specific questions a lot of organizations come to us with is, great, we we absolutely know that we're, we want to scale and that we don't want to turn away people. <laughs> um, and at the same time, what is that going to mean for our ability to provide really high quality, deeply impactful services and, and programming? Um, so a lot of times, that's one of the key outcomes that we're designing for when we try and create an appropriate scale model. We want to consider what are the incentives? What's the value proposition for each stakeholder that's helping deliver at scale? Mm-hmm. And then how do we get really clear on the roles and responsibilities between organizations? How do we get really clear on what kind of initial support and then ongoing supports required? What type of legal agreements support this? So, you know, how do we systemize key processes and operations? So those are all things that we do to bake quality into a model rather than saying, oh, let's have a very intensive monitoring and evaluation or quality assurance mechanism. Yeah. Interesting. Baking it in, you said, into the standard organizational procedures and processes. Exactly. And it actually comes back to our conversation about uh, the role of influencing public policy, because sometimes there has to be a shift at the policy or the regulatory level to create those incentives. Um, So to give a totally different example in Illinois, we've mm-hmm. worked with an organization that is trying to provide respectful, equitable contraceptive care for the half a million people that currently lack coverage just in that state alone. And they recognize there are all of these intersection intersecting barriers, right, that prevent people from achieving their own reproductive well-being. And the barriers are higher for folks that are young, that are BIPOC, that are LGBTQ, that are rural, that are in low-income communities. And so their approach is to actually build a network of trusted healthcare providers. And they're doing that through these clinics called federally qualified healthcare centers. Mm -hmm. In one way, they're scaling up their intervention because they're providing a train the trainer model for the providers in those existing centers. Mm -hmm. But they're also serving as the lead architect on several policy reforms that are going to change the way that those centers are reimbursed by the state, by Medicaid and Medi-Cal, excuse me, Medicaid and Medicare so that they can ensure that people are actually getting really good coverage and that there's a baked in incentive for those uh, federally qualified health centers to actually provide care in this way. Mm, Yeah. So again, the role of of policy and advocacy and influencing. Um, Now, when we prepared for this uh, this recording you said that you typically like to frame innovation and its its relationship to scaling as a testing and learning in service of impact at scale we know that mission uh focused organizations can struggle struggle with innovation just as much as they can with a scaling strategy so what do you what do you think are strong enablers or disablers for for developing hypotheses, for testing and learning, and so trying out innovations and then seeing what turns out to be scalable. What have you noticed in practice about enablers and disablers? Yeah, one of the biggest things that we notice that can be an enabler if it's in place 
is openness to failure, right? So, and that's really scary when we're doing the type of work that we're doing because we care so deeply about the outcomes and the impact that we're after. And so one of the biggest enablers that we see for that innovation and service of impact at scale is the willingness to hold our our hypothesis lightly to Mm. test it in the real world and then use our learnings and our failures to quickly improve on our pathway and impact. And I think a lot of times organizations actually get a little bit stuck or confused in thinking that invention is innovation rather than testing and learning being innovation, right? Because oh, well said. Yeah. Invention's just the spark of a new idea. That's it. But testing and learning over month, over month, over month is what gets to breakthrough meaningful difference. Yeah. Yeah. I like very much what you said. Does it matter, uh, Amy, when it comes to scaling, does it matter whether the client organization has, does organizational size or structure matter when we want to create a good context for for scaling or not necessarily? I would say that structure matters and size less so once you get to a critical um, difference. So most important is having some kind of dedicated capacity for long-term scaling, right? Because this is not, this is going to absolutely compete with the day-to-day fires again, uh, that an organization involved in direct delivery is trying to manage. And so depending on the type of scaling pathway that's, that's appropriate, that might mean having someone who's really dedicated on forming strategic partnerships or really dedicated in building out a campaign and an advocacy strategy Sometimes I work with massive organiza- massive global organizations with you know 600 thousands of people, and they don't even have that dedicated capacity because of the structure of the organization. Mm. But other times I work with three person, four person teams that have managed to actually ring fence and protect that type of space for the the relentless pursuit of you know impact, value, and sustainability that you have to see to get to scale. Yeah. So okay, okay. So that's in in short your your answer. Yeah. <laughs> now leadership mindsets I, and culture. I love I love talking about it and I love learning about it. What have what leadership mindsets have you found to be uh, that were that were visible that you could detect, if you will, are helpful beyond the the. Uh, uh, openness to failure, right? Is there uh, that is helpful for for success and failing, and what is less helpful? Mm. There are a few actually, and we've talked about one, several of them. We already talked about one, which is impact before growth, right? So, okay. is our goal to reach a certain amount of revenue or a certain organizational size, or is it to actually achieve? Our mission, which could mean putting ourselves completely out of business as social yeah. impact organizations. Yeah. Um, I think we've talked about a, a second one, which is problem over solution. So being willing to change our intervention, being willing to change our ideas as context shifts um, and, and being adaptive to our environment. Is that what Anmei Chang calls don't, uh, what does she say, don't get Mary. She says, uh, fall in love with the problem, not your yes. solution. Right. You. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, we always say, stay committed to your problem because the problems are horrible that we're trying to address. Right. But we want to stay obsessed and committed to them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So another one, again, is cl- is collaboration by default. So you 
there's very few examples of organizations that are able to make a dent in a societal problem on their own. Instead, it's about understanding what is my ecosystem? Who are the other actors that are working on this in the same ecosystem? Where can I be most effective? And where should I actually amplify or coordinate other groups' strengths? Mm-hmm. I'm now thinking suddenly of the book by uh, Alnur Ibrahim, who I interviewed on the podcast on social impact and measurement of social impact and, and his quadrants, but uh, that that's uh, for another time. Now, I mean, do organizations need to have a lot of unrestricted uh, investment funds to invest in scaling? Uh, is that So if you don't have that, then forget it? So it's always the chicken and the egg, right? Because I think one of the most important things that organizations need to do is, yes, to get some funding for scaling. But it's really hard to do that without making the pitch in the first place. And Mm -hmm. so um, oftentimes we're working with organizations that have managed to get just enough funding where they can carve out their team's capacity to do the thinking, to put some ideas on paper and begin testing their models But then I would argue as early as we can, we should be thinking about those alternative sources of revenue just so we're not so so dependent on on donor-driven philanthropy, frankly. Uh, Okay, as early as possible. So start thinking, yeah, of potential resources that can be created by this through the scaling approach that are our earned income. You mentioned what other uh I seem to so government, I mean that's a long that's a long game, right? Government contracts don't come through I right away, so. but it is a yeah. really good source of more steady and renewable of funding. Uh-huh. And then um we would also say sometimes so within earned income there's a whole bunch of different models. It's very rare, but when you're working with digital solutions, sometimes that earned in- income model can actually be um, like advertisements even, which which is very rare. But if you're working with, there's, for example, an organization we've partnered with that developed like an English learning program, mm-hmm. and they pair that for Spanish-speaking immigrants alongside doing information sharing, newslet- like news specific for that population, get out the vote efforts specific for that population. And they've managed to make that such a valuable asset that they can just put advertisements alongside that um, English mm-hmm. learning program and uh, dissemination of information. Most of the time, I will say that does not work. And most organizations I work with would roll their eyes when they hear that and say, well, we're not a simple digital solution. It's going to take a lot more money. Yeah. And, to. and that's where government funding, thinking about, you know, is there an employer or an insurance provider or some other entity that should be investing in, in our solution being scaled? Yeah, but fee for service could be one of those, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when when uh, you see organizations trying to think through what is the financial sustainability model, and you've already talked about this, but I'm just checking. Um, do you see organizations ever getting stuck in thinking, okay, the current mix of revenue sources is what we will continue with? Uh, or is that not such a kind of a cultural phenomenon? I think it's very easy to to get stuck there. And again, I relate, I empathize with leaders that are in that place because again, in our sector, we're often in financial crunches. We're trying to make the most of the existing grants that we have. Um, so being able to open up to considering different mixes of of funding is really important. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's in ways that surprise us. Um, 
what comes to mind is an example. Actually, I live in California, so this is related to houselessness in California. And you might have seen this, but this is several years ago, the United States, um, I think it's the Interagency Council on Homelessness, had Mm -hmm. found that having someone who's chronically houseless actually costs three, uh, I think it was 30 to $50,000 per year because those individuals are cycling through ER departments and they're cycling through inpatient beds and hospitals. There's actually so much money that government and Medi-Cal in California are paying So we developed an intervention with uh, an organization who's working on houselessness in California to provide very holistic services that include housing, mental health support, job um, support, uh, clothing, food. I mean, very, very intense, high Mm -hmm. cost per outcome. I'm using air quotes around cost per outcome, but it was less than $30,000 that are already being spent. Yeah. So I think that's where we try and help organizations think okay, what data points would we need to make the case then to have someone invest in this intervention? How can we use that um, business model really to to demonstrate that this is actually ultimately saving people money in the long term? Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe one last question before we run out of time. Um, In an era of a lot of discussion in our sector and some some action. Uh, uh, one can, of course, discuss whether it's sufficient, uh, but some effort at decolonizing aid, localizing development, shifting uh, roles of nonprofits and NGOs, shifting decision rights and authority, right, uh, to others outside, especially the INGO and international funder realm. So what are the implications of these um, um, developments for scaling, Mm. if any? So I think it's very in line with when scaling is done strategically and thoughtfully, because good scale models are very clear on what should be adapted and owned at a community by community by community level. And so in some ways, I, I think scale can be a a dirty word for a lot of people, right? Because it sounds baked into that, that you're taking something, you're going to spread it thin, you're going to have less local contextualization um, and adaptation. But the reality is it's impossible to have sustained deep impact at scale without being incredibly thoughtful around who is holding power and authority and decision rights and also taking into account what the political economy is or what the incentive systems are in in any given region. Yeah. So you do see, you don't see necessarily um, an inherent trade-off or tension uh, between decolonizing aid, localizing um, authority and decision rights, et cetera, and scaling. That's what I hear you say. As long as this, again, as long as it's designed intentionally, and I think in in the misuse of a scale model, I can absolutely see how it would be intention. But what we really try and do at Spring Impact is say, okay, how are we going to, um, even when partnering with government, right? If we partner with government in India, we're going to have to take a state-by-state approach to that mm. partnership because each state has a completely different set of um, policies and political system and economic factors. So as much as possible, part of what we're almost uh, busting, if you will, is the myth of that scale means just one thing, which is stretching ourselves as as um, shallowly and wide as possible instead of being really intentional about how we embed change 
within local contexts. And that does absolutely mean how we think about decolonizing aid and localizing power. Mm, interesting. Interesting. That would make for a whole bigger discussion, but we are running out of time. So I have to ask the inevitable question. Uh, people may want to follow up with you. So Amy, where can they learn more about you and where can they learn more about uh, Spring Impact and get in touch? Absolutely. Um, one that I will, I'll share two resources. One is we have an open source toolkit. So we try and practice what we preach. Um, all of our tools around developing a scaling strategy, including thinking through your doers and your payers or your um, earned income or your financial sustainability models. Some of the topics we've talked about today, there are open source tools that we keep live and we continuously update on our website that anyone can access. Nice. So I encourage people to check out just springimpact.org if they would like to play around with that for their own organization. And then the second would be that our founder, um, Dan Barelowitz, has a podcast called Mission to Scale Podcast. And similar to you, brings in different leaders in the sector to talk about their own scaling journey. And that goes you know, episode by episode, quite deep into scaling with government or scaling with, um, you know, strategic partnerships and different pathways. So I encourage folks to check that out as well. Well, I better listen to those then as well, because I got to keep learning. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for um, all your insights. I really, um, I'm so glad. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to learn from you and to learn from your colleagues about scaling, because it's really something that I needed to learn much more about. So thank you for your insights. And thank you, listeners. If you found this podcast episode stimulating, um, maybe there are some other uh, episodes that are of interest to you, since um, there are a couple of episodes that I have that are on innovation. And again, that's an area uh, kind of adjacent to scaling. So I can recommend episodes 32, 34, 45, 48, and 50. So quite a few that are devoted to um, to innovation as such. And besides this episode, I hope to offer more content in the future on scaling, because I think there is uh, you know, a real, a real appetite for that. You can find these episodes and more, not just on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org. That is with the number five, but also on my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my email list and you'll always be the first to be in the know when a new episode or a new blog post arrives. And with that, this is Tosca and I look forward to spending time with you next time on NGO Soul and Strategy. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again, 
at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.